Science Friday is supported by Progressive. Now, most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Science Friday. I'm Roxanne Kamsey. Ira is away this week. Later in the hour, we'll talk about how science has a starring role at this year's Olympics. Plus, new research into earthquakes on Mars. Though I suppose we'd better call them Marsquakes. But first, longtime listeners will know that the human gut microbiome is a favorite subject of the show. We're learning more every year about how communities of bacteria, viruses, and fungi operate in and on your body to both harm and benefit your health. And yes, you heard that right. Fungi are part of that equation. And just as the community dynamics of the bacteria in our gut may have a role in our health, research is finding interesting relationships between our immune system, fungi, and conditions like inflammatory bowel disease. Kyla Ost is a postdoctoral researcher in pathology at the University of Utah and a co-author of new research on a fungus called Candida albicans. Welcome, Kyla. Thank you, Roxanne. I'm excited to be here. Can you tell me a bit about which fungi are there and what they're up to? I mean, we're not talking about full-fledged mushrooms, for example, right? You're exactly right. When we think of the gut microbial community, your mind automatically goes to the bacteria, which in all fairness, make up the vast majority of the microbial community. But among this complex community of microbes, there are fungal species. And of course, like you said, these are not mushroom species. They are yeast species typically. And so what's a yeast? A yeast is a single-celled organism that grows typically in little circular buds. And under a microscope, they look very similar to the yeast that you think of that makes our beer and you use to make bread. These single-celled yeast species, while they are vastly outnumbered by the bacteria within the gut, are really important for host health. And the species you're looking at specifically is Candida albicans, right? Uh, What is Candida up to? Yeah, so Candida albicans is typically the most dominant or abundant fungal species in a human gut. Most of what we know about Candida is from its pathogenic potential. So we know that Candida is a normal colonizer of the human gut, but in people who have compromised immune systems, the Candida can overgrow and invade host tissues to cause infections Mm. like thrush or vaginal yeast infections. But recent research has demonstrated that Canada albicans and other Canada fungi can exacerbate inflammatory diseases like inflammatory bowel disease. Mm-hmm. And that is the sort of disease that we focused on in this study. And you and your colleagues found that whether Candida albicans is harmful actually depends on what shape it took? 
Yeah, you're exactly right. So Canada and other fungi, in fact, are really fascinating because they're, they're shapeshifters. And Canada alicans is really famous for undergoing this morphological transition from growing as a single-celled budded yeast to an elongated multicellular hyphal form. And this is really important because the hyphal form of Canada is more pathogenic. So it's better at adhering to host tissues and invading host tissues. Basically, what we found was that our immune system is really good at targeting and suppressing this hyphal pathogenic form of Canada. And we further showed that this hyphal form of Canada is much more pathogenic in a mouse model of IBD than the yeast form. And so the implication of our work is that potentially it's not necessarily just the presence of Canada albicans within the gut that is exacerbating disease, but it's the form that that Canada albicans has taken that may be important for disease exacerbation. Yeah, it's like a lot of shape-shifting going on with this Canada albicans. I, I didn't imagine all this stuff was happening in our guts. Um, so like, what is our immune system doing to target that sticky type of Canada albicans? What we found was that it's actually antibodies that appear to be specifically targeting this hyphal form and suppressing the hyphae within the gut. And so antibodies are immune molecules designed to target molecules, often on pathogenic microbes. And in the gut, it's actually quite fascinating because our gut immune cells make a lot of antibodies every day, even in the absence of infection. And these microbes within our gut, including Canada albicans and other commensal species, sort of live their whole lives in an environment teeming with these immune molecules that are constantly targeting them. And so Yes, what we found is that these antibody responses are really important for targeting and shaping the Canada albicans biology in such a way to suppress hyphae and pathogenic molecules on these fungi to potentially suppress their pathogenic potential. Can you kind of connect all this with the inflammatory bowel disease? This really common gut disorder. So what our study is focused on is, is trying to understand how Canada albicans is maintained in a non-pathogenic state in a sort of a healthy situation. And so the antibody responses that we found were not sort of specific or different depending on IBD status, but I want to emphasize that they were present in healthy people along with people with IBD. And so what we think this represents is a normal sort of homeostatic interaction between antibody responses and this commensal yeast that most of us carry around within the gut that actually promotes its commensalism. By that, I mean prevents pathogenic Canada from arising. Does the yeast form of Canada albicans actually help us in any way? Like why would our immune systems leave it alone when it's in that kind of friendly form? That's a fantastic question. One that, you know, I and many others in the field are trying to answer. But I would say that there have been a number of really fascinating recent studies to suggest that Canada albicans in the gut may serve a beneficial purpose. They might be beneficial in some way. And particularly, Canada albicans is, is pretty immunogenic, so it's really good at getting in your gut and inducing strong immune responses without leaving the gut, so living in its normal commensal place. And researchers have recently found that these immune responses induced by Canada can protect potentially from other 
pathogenic microbes like bacteria. So there have been some clues to suggest that Canada in the gut may be beneficial. But yes, you're right. It depends on sort of the biology or maybe even you could think of the behavior of the Canada in the gut, whether it has beneficially a beneficial potential or pathogenic potential. So usually we have this picture of the immune system coming in to save us from invaders, but it sounds like what's going on with these fungi is a little bit more nuanced. Can you unpack that a bit? Oh, I'm so happy you picked up on that. That's the bit about our study that fascinates me the most. You're exactly right that there's a complex and not very, it's not necessarily linear sort of interaction between our immune system and fungi or candid albicans in the gut. What we found ultimately is that these antibody responses are really good at targeting candida albicans, but in fact, they're not responsible for clearing or suppressing the total level of candida within the gut. Instead, what appears to be happening is that these antibody responses are altering or sculpting the biology of the Canada population within your gut to suppress the sort of bad form of Canada within the gut. And the fascinating bit about this is that we discovered that Canada albicans itself appears to gain a fitness advantage from this immune sculpting. Oh my goodness. What that means is that the selection for these yeast cell types over the hyphae improves Canada's fitness for gut colonization. Other studies have demonstrated that the yeast cell form of Canada, for some reason, does a whole lot better in the gut than hyphae. And our study demonstrates that antibodies may be helping Canada basically be the best commensal it can be, while also preventing sort of the damage that Canada could potentially cause. I mean, that's definitely a two-way street between our immune systems and the candida albicans, it sounds like. I like to think of it as a communication that um, the candida and the host are sort of moving towards a mutualistic interaction to maintain homeostasis. So we've talked a little bit about how this relationship can go wrong sometimes. And I know that in those situations, we have antifungals. But there's also rising antifungal resistance. So this antibody response to candida albicans that you, you found, can we use that somehow and harness it to make the disease less severe for people? Yes, that's exactly what we tested and what we think we've, we've shown. We used a candida albicans vaccine, which has been developed originally to prevent candida albicans infections. And this vaccine is fascinating because it is, it's called the NDV3A vaccine. It's designed to target just one type of adhesin molecule, a sticky molecule on Canada albicans that we found was also a target of these intestinal antibody responses. And so what we found was that this adhesin-based vaccine was really effective at preventing Canada from aggravating IBD in mice and suggests that this vaccination strategy could be a potentially useful therapeutic to prevent um, this type of um, pathogenic interaction with Canada in people. This is, this is fascinating, I have to say. Uh, we're all walking around with these communities of fungi and bacteria in our guts. And so I am curious still to know a little bit more about are there any questions you have about how your immune system is interacting beyond what we already know? Like, is there anything you're, you're 
dying to know about the immune system's relationship with all these living organisms inside of us? Uh, yes, it is. I have to admit something I think about all the time. I think there's many really important questions that we still don't understand about sort of immune responses and microbes. When we think of these antibody responses, we think of, you know, it being very linear in which the microbes induce the response, the response targets them and clears them. But now we're really understanding is that the commensal microbes within our gut are inducing these immune responses throughout our life and we carry them throughout our life. And so what interests me is understanding how microbes, not just the commensal microbes, but also pathogens sort of contend with this mature immune environment that is always present and always changing. We don't know that much about how uh, the, this immune environment sort of shapes the biology and the interactions with a host of, of different microbes. Well, I have to say, I'm really going to be thinking about all of this and especially my immune system the next time I have a meal. So, you know, uh, thank you. Uh, Kyla, that's all the time we have, but we really appreciate your joining us today. Thank you so much. Kyla Ost, postdoctoral researcher in pathology at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. We have to take a break, but when we come back, we'll talk about two big sciencey reasons why the Tokyo Olympics are different from previous ones, COVID-19 and climate change. We'll be right back after this short break. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, the fewer on college campuses over the war in Gaza. Students have tried to have dialogue over and negotiate differences in how they see the world, even as they respond to tragedies and crimes overseas. Students and faculty from Harvard University on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is Science Friday. I'm Roxanne Kamsey. The Tokyo Olympics have been underway for a week now. And for those of us who love seeing very talented people at the peak of their athletic abilities, it's a fun thing to watch. But this year in particular, it's hard to watch the Olympics without thinking about two huge science stories, COVID-19 and the record heat and humidity athletes are facing as part of this year's Olympic Games. A little later, we'll talk about how climate change affects athletic performance. But first, keeping COVID-19 out of the Olympics has been a huge logistical challenge. There are more than 11,000 athletes participating in this summer's Games from 206 nations. Factor in the coaches, staff, press, and service workers, that's a lot of people to keep tabs on in order to mitigate infections. Since we're a week into this experiment, let's find out how it's been going with my guest. Hannah Kaiser is a sports writer for Yahoo Sports. She's based in Brooklyn, but she's joining us from Tokyo. Hi, Hannah. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi, thank you for having me. So let's talk about COVID-19 protocols for athletes. What did they have to do before last Friday when the Olympics officially started? Well, one of the things they had to do was not show up if they're not competing right away. So <laughs> the IOC is limiting how long they can be in the village. So that's part of why we saw a really small opening ceremony. I think we also probably saw a really small opening ceremony in terms of athlete participation because there was no one to cheer them on. There was no fans, obviously. So, so you mentioned the 11,000 athletes. I think I've heard that there's somewhere like 79,000 support staff. So it's not just the athletes themselves that, that are showing up to Tokyo. It's people like me, the media. And I'm pretty sure they're right in line with what we did, which involved 
multiple tests, very precise amount of time out. So you had to take a test within 96 hours of traveling, another one within 72 hours of traveling. It's an incredible amount of paperwork. A truly, like we had to submit these so-called activity plans that tell the Japanese government exactly where we're going to be, all the possible locations in Tokyo and, and in the surrounding cities that we could be the first two weeks that we're here. They had to be approved all the way up the chain, all the way up to the sort of Japanese government <laughs> level. For media, at least once we're here, we're testing every day for the first three days. We have these apps on our phone that we're having to check in every day, temperature, symptoms, that sort of thing. They are trying to keep incredibly close tabs on everyone, which I'm not entirely sure how how well they're doing that. I mean, I just, it's it's so many people and they're testing everyone so often and it's uh, sort of hard to imagine that they're processing all of these tests and, and actually keeping all this information somewhere. So what you're saying about testing is so intense. And one thing that comes to mind is vaccines. You know, vaccines are not widely available yet in many parts of the world. So does that mean that vaccines are not required for the athletes? They are not required for the athletes, not even for the U.S. athletes. And, you know, vaccines are, are fairly widely available back in the States. Um, they weren't required for anyone. And not only were they not required, it doesn't get you anything. I mean, there's sort of there are the protocols are no different regardless of whether or not you're vaccinated. And that's true for both media and athletes. Wow. Okay. So are there rules for how the athletes are supposed to interact with each other when they're not competing, given given this COVID age we're in? Yeah, they're not supposed to be interacting much at all. I mean, it certainly looks like they have more freedom in the village than we do as media and we cannot go to the village, but they're interacting a little in the dining hall. But, you know, there are these plastic barriers between every seat. So you're even if you're eating with one other person, you're on the other side of plastic. They're they're being told to put on plastic gloves when they go into the dining hall, which, you know, we were a year and a half into this. We do know the science and that's kind of just sanitation theater. I'm not sure that's actually doing anything to protect anyone from COVID. Well, is there a lot of masking going on there? There is an incredible amount of masking. Yes, there's an incredible amount of masking and an incredible culture of policing masking. That's, I think, widely within Japan and certainly within the Olympics. I mean, even the the IOC had to update their official protocols just to let athletes take their masks off for something like 30 seconds on the podium to take a photo because originally they were supposed to, you know, wear their masks as any time they're doing anything other than competing or training. So one of the things that actually also was surprising to me is to hear that some of these athletes have actually tested positive for COVID since arriving in Japan. Like, how does that reflect on these policies, all the things that you've just told us about? Is there room to be even stricter with some of these policies? You know, I'm not sure that there is room, which is sort of the whole problem with all of this. I mean, you know, they they wanted to hold these Olympics despite the the rate of cases in Tokyo being on the rise, the rate sort of around the world where you're seeing new variants. And I think that this amount of positive tests, I, I don't think you could sort of crack down even further. I think that that's actually sort of an important thing to keep in mind is that we are seeing positive tests. And I don't know that it's necessarily because the athletes are breaking protocol. We haven't had any sort of huge scandal. Oh, somebody went out to party in Tokyo. I think it's just, you know, you bring 80, 90,000 people together and not all of them are vaccinated and you're going to have some false positives, real positives, breakthrough tests. I mean, there wasn't a way that you could put in a sufficient number of protocols to ensure that this was a totally 100% safe process. So what are you going to be keeping your eye out for in this final week of the Olympics COVID-wise? 
I think there's, there's really two things. One is the, the sort of community rate in Tokyo. I think we've seen some indications that cases are continuing to rise. And that's a real problem. I mean, you know, whether or not the Olympics should take place, and this is true sort of of all sports leagues that are happening in a pandemic, you're going to get a certain number of positives if you're testing hundreds or thousands of athletes. But what you don't want to see is that that's prolonging the pandemic or worsening the pandemic in the in the community that's sort of foisted upon. So I think in terms of evaluating whether or not these Olympics should have happened or whether or not it's a huge mistake or a failure, it, that's really going to come from what the rates are like in Tokyo at large. And then beyond that, because people are testing positive, what effect that has on the competitive integrity of the sports we've seen athletes have to drop out or have to get replaced at the last minute. You know, somebody could test positive right before a gold medal match. And that we would start to feel that, you know, not only are these maybe a bad idea, they're also kind of a farce if they're undermining the the athletic competitive integrity as well as the safety of the city. Yeah, well, definitely everything that you've said is making me feel like the stakes are even higher than at any regular Olympics. But, you know, thank you so much, Hannah. And I want you to stay safe out there in Tokyo. Thank you. Hannah Kaiser is a sports writer for Yahoo Sports. She's based in Brooklyn, but is currently in Tokyo covering the Olympics. Now to the other big science story of this year's Olympics. Tokyo is hot. The city has consistently hit 90 degrees Fahrenheit during the Games, with relative humidity hovering around 80%. While the city has always had high heat and humidity in summertime, things have gotten much worse with global warming. According to NASA, Tokyo's average temperature has gotten 5 degrees hotter since 1900. If you're one of the elite athletes in this year's Olympics, that means you've got to take measures to keep yourself cool and safe. Because trying to hit your athletic peak at the right time is already a complicated process, even without extreme weather. Here to talk with me about athletic performance and safety amid extreme heat in this year's Olympics is my guest, Dr. Scott Delp, professor of bioengineering at Stanford University and director of the Wusai Human Performance Alliance. He's based in Palo Alto, California. Welcome to Science Friday. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So, Scott, let's start with the idea of an athlete peaking at the right time. What does that mean exactly? And like, what are the factors that go into making sure that an athlete peaks at the right time? It's a great question. And there are a lot of factors. You want to peak physically, emotionally, mentally, so that you can really perform your best. And and to do that, you need to train hard. But the, the key is to not overtrain, not peak too early because overtraining can literally leave you exhausted and unable to perform even near your peak. So it's challenging because we vary between individuals and we vary between sports and there's not super strong science to guide this. So it's, it's really um, a challenge for athletes as they approach the Olympics. You got to find that sweet spot, but what happens like if an athlete pushes themselves too hard biologically? So injury is the most common problem. When we overload, we can injure muscles, tendons, ligaments, and they take a long time to heal, a short time to injure, but a long time to heal. And you might be just emotionally exhausted or not have the ability to to focus. And, you know, competing is not just a physical event. It's also a mental event too. So it really is challenging to sync all these up. 
I would like to talk about the weather. I know that uh, talking about the weather is sometimes a conversation filler, but in this case, it's actually something that's of huge consequence, right? There's extreme weather conditions athletes are facing in this year's Olympics. Not only is it very, very hot in Tokyo, there's also very high humidity. So how do these factors affect the human body? They affect the, the body profoundly. And I think you pointed out something really important, that it's not just hot, it's also humid. And there's a big difference when we have both of those things. Humans cool ourselves by evaporating sweat from the surfaces of our bodies. And we do that actually quite well. We have lots of surface on which we can sweat. And when we have that liquid on the outside of our body and it evaporates, that takes a lot of energy and that sucks the heat out of our body. The problem is that it's very difficult to do that when there's high humidity. We sweat, but the sweat doesn't evaporate. So we're not shedding heat like we would if it were hot and dry. And in Tokyo, it's hot and humid. So we're sweating, but the sweat isn't evaporating. So we're not cooling ourselves very well. And when that happens, it actually can raise the core temperature of your body. And that can be quite dangerous. You see some athletes collapsing because of heat exhaustion and even heat stroke. You know, but we're humans and we're pretty ingenious sometimes. And I think what we've seen at the Olympics is there are some athletes using like cold vests or ice packs before and during competition. Are there other ways that heat and humidity can be mitigated in terms of its effect? There are. You know, it's interesting. The best radiators in our body are our hands and our feet and our head. So cooling our hands or cooling our feet is the most effective way to drop your core temperature. So if you put your hands or feet in an ice bucket, that works really well. I've seen people putting ice on their wrists and that can be effective, but that's basically cooling the pipes going to the radiators. The radiators are the hands and the feet. So you really want to cool the radiators. That would be very effective. On the ice vests, if they're tightly fitting and really transferring a lot of heat out of the body into the ice of the vest, that can be effective. But you have to watch out. If you're just cooling the skin and shutting down the capillaries there, the small blood vessels that are there to help you shed heat, you actually might continue to raise the core temperature while you're cooling the skin. So you have to watch out and make sure you're hitting the right balance. You know, it reminds me, I went to tennis camp, which is hilarious if you've ever seen me play tennis, because I cannot. Uh, and I remember the uh, very wise, aged, the head of the camp telling us if we ever got hot on those courts to go run our wrists under cold water. So are you debunking what he told us back then many decades ago? Well, so it can work but it doesn't work as well as dunking your hands in cold water or dunking your feet in cold water. That's where your body really radiates a lot of energy and you can cool yourself. If you cool the blood in your hands, then when it goes back to your heart, then you spread that cooled blood all over your body. I'm Roxanne Kamsey, and this is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. So are there any summer sports, because there are a lot of them at the Olympics, that require more heat prep than others? There are long duration sports like the, the triathlon, the marathon. If you're out there on the soccer field for an hour and a half or two hours, they really require heat training. And training in heat prior to 
than trying to perform in heat, it really works. There are a number of adaptations that come into play that if you train in heat, you'll be better adapted and better able to perform, especially for those long duration events. If it's a short duration event, it might affect your performance, but it's not going to be dangerous. Yeah, I can imagine, uh, especially if you're running a marathon or something like that, that you've just got to be super careful about getting too hot. One thing they are doing, I've seen this in the marathon, and I think it's a good idea. Instead of drinking water, they're drinking slushies. So there's a little bit of ice in there. And to put that ice into your core, and then your body has to melt the ice. So the energy associated with the melting of ice can really dissipate a lot of heat. So I actually have seen that. And I think it's a really good idea in these high heat situations. I think we're very get, getting very close here to a scientific endorsement of ice cream. Um, but, I, <laughs> but I'll move on to uh, the last couple of questions here, which is, you know, we know that athletes are just reaching heights and speeds that we've we've never seen before. They're really showing us all that humans can do. But, you know, climate change is getting worse and worse. We're seeing the planet warm. So is it getting harder than ever to be an elite athlete given the warming planet? Well, heat certainly can degrade our performance in a place like Tokyo during July and August with high heat and high humidity. It not only can degrade performance, but also be dangerous. So I think one of the things we have to think about with global climate change is when we hold these events and where we hold these events, because holding them in places that are high heat and high humidity, we really shouldn't be exposing athletes to that kind of risk. So I think that's going to be an important consideration going forward for these global events is where and when we hold them. Wow, that's a fantastic point. Um, so we're talking about the Olympics here, but heat and humidity are also going to impact you and me, right? Um, so given that, is there something that we can glean from studying the science of performance that might help us? It really can. You know, almost all of what we know about health is from studying diseases. And we've just launched this uh, new scientific partnership called the Human Performance Alliance. And we're taking the opposite approach. We're studying peak performance with the goal of enabling all people to achieve optimal health and well-being. You can imagine, for example, to study how an athlete can cool themselves. They're actually quite trained and very good at it. But there are individuals that as we age, for example, we aren't as good at shedding heat. So to see the biological mechanisms that athletes use to cool themselves during physical exertion and understanding that can actually help all of us to have a better approach to maintaining our body temperature. So I think what you're saying is we're going to see slushies for seniors. <laughs> That's not a bad idea, actually. You know, it's a big <laughs> problem when cities get hot. Well, I hear the ice cream trucks coming anyway. <laughs> um, that's all the time we have for now. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Scott Delp, Professor of Bioengineering at Stanford University and Director of the Wu Tsai Human Performance Alliance. He's based in Palo Alto, California. Thanks so much, Roxanne. It's been great to be with you. After the break, we're learning about Mars quakes. Stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm Roxanne Kamsey. You've seen the effects of earthquakes on our planet. The ground shakes, the earth trembles, and if it's strong enough, damage and devastation. But it turns out that ours is not the only quaking planet around. 
there are Mars quakes, too. Seismologists have been studying these quakes on Mars, and they're giving scientists exciting first clues as to what's going on below the Martian surface. Several new papers based on the data from the Mars InSight lander were recently published in the journal Science. Joining me now to talk about that mission and what it is revealing is Bruce Bannert. He's principal investigator for the Mars InSight mission. And Sue Smirkar. She's deputy principal investigator for the Mars InSight lander and the principal investigator for the planned Veritas space probe to Venus. They're both based at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi, how are you doing? Great. Sue, it's good to have you too. (laughs) Thanks. Bruce, I'd like to kick it off with you. Can you describe these quakes for us? Like, how big are they on the Richter scale? Well, these are actually fairly small quakes by our uh, kind of Earth standards. These are less than about magnitude four on the uh, magnitude scale. And that's a a quake that you would feel pretty well. You'd feel it shaking you around if you were within, oh, 10 or 20 miles of the the epicenter on the Earth or on Mars for that matter. But if you got much farther away from that, you probably wouldn't feel very much. Uh, So these are not very big quakes. But Mars is a small planet, so they don't have to go very far to get through the inside. And we're able to use these very small quakes to probe deep into the planet. You and Sue and others were detecting these quakes with the seismometer from InSight. Can you tell me a little bit about how you use the technology to find out what's going on inside the planet? Well, it's uh, the science of seismology is, is basically taking the wiggles on a, on a seismogram, which are, you know, the, the displacement waves that come through the planet and using them to pull out the information that they've picked up as the waves that travel through the planet. So when a, a fault breaks on the other side of the planet, it sets up vibrations and those vibrations move through the planet, much like sound waves uh, move through the air. And as they move through the planet, the properties of these waves are affected by the materials they move through. Um, they can get reflected off of boundaries. They can get uh, refracted uh, just the same way as light is refracted in a prism as they go from one kind of material into another kind of material. They get attenuated. The, the, the waves uh, die out. They, they lose some of their energy as they go through materials. And some materials attenuate them more than others, especially hot materials, which are a little bit softer, tend to, to, to kill off the waves more quickly than cold, brittle materials. And so all these things are, are basically they're pieces of information about the deep inside of the planet that get encoded into the signal. And so we've used uh, things like the, uh, the travel times of, of different waves to infer the different uh, paths that they've taken. We look at their frequency content. We look at their polarization. There are uh, just a myriad of different ways that you can uh, attack these signals with uh, the same kinds of processes that, that have been developed for you know, radar, radio, and things like that, and, and even acoustic recordings to, you know, pull this information out of, out of our seismograms. Oh, that's amazing. Um, and you've been working on this lander for around a decade. Is it as straightforward as taking an Earth-sized monitor and getting it to another planet? Um, nothing in space is straightforward. It's, it's actually a super complex and, and, and difficult uh, uh, endeavor to get something uh, that works on the Earth and make sure that you can actually do the same thing on the, the uh, very harsh surface of, of another planet like, uh, like Mars. So it sounds a little tricky. you got to package it up and somehow uh, 
deliver it in a way that's unique? Right. I mean, first of all, you have to get it on the ground on another planet. And it's it's uh, it's hard enough just landing on Mars. I'm sure you've seen uh, the videos about how difficult and how uh, hair raising it is to land on Mars. But once you've landed on the planet, your instrument's sitting on top of your of, of your lander, which is about uh, a meter away from where you'd like to be, which is on the ground. And so we had to include a, a robotic arm that would pick it up off the deck of the lander place it on the ground, and then pick up another uh, shield to put over it to protect it from the wind. So that was a, a pretty complex operation in and of itself. And then we had to, to shield it against the temperatures. On Mars, the temperatures can go up and down by more than 100 degrees uh, Celsius. And you know how uh, things expand and contract with temperature. When we're measuring displacements of the ground, vibrations of the ground, some of those vibrations are no larger than the than the, the size of a hydrogen atom. And so you can imagine even small temperature variations down to a thousandth of a degree can make a signals on our seismometers. So we have to we have three different layers of, of thermal insulation. We have a, a windshield to, to keep the wind from blowing on it. Uh, we do all kinds of things to to cut down on other sources of vibrational noise so we can see these extremely small vibrations that have traveled for thousands of kilometers through the planet. Well, this does not sound easy peasy, but I'm glad that you guys figured out the robotic arm and all those different uh, protections. Uh, Fantastic. So, Sue, can you tell us a bit about what's going on with these quakes? Um, On Earth, as far as I understand, there's tectonic plates pushing into each other, but that's not the case on Mars, right? Right, no plate tectonics on Mars, but that doesn't mean that there isn't tectonics. So, you know, on Earth, we have our plates that are um, sinking into the mantle and sliding past each other and colliding to form mountain belts. So we have, you know, measurable velocities of these plates at the surface, constantly causing geologic activity and and basically all of our earthquakes. But on Mars, uh, you know, it's a so-called single plate planet, But that doesn't mean that there's not fracturing, deformation, faulting, volcanoes. Now, of course, most of the surface of Mars is quite old, billions of years old. But there are still a few places on the surface that are um, recently, from a geologist standpoint, active. And one of the places uh, is actually pretty close to our lander, about a thousand miles from our lander. And... um, it's called a Cerberus Fossae, and it's got these 500 kilometer, few hundred mile long uh, fractures that are related to volcanism. Uh, there have been flows that have come out, uh, you know, in the past uh, few million years. So for Mars, that's super recent. And so there's still geologic activity on Mars. And as I understand, it's the planet is cooling as well, right? That adds something right. to, to the, the whole picture. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And in fact, you know, before we sent InSight to Mars, people did calculations to try to estimate the um, amount of fracturing or faulting that would be occurring due to that cooling of the planet. I mean, all planets are cooling and uh, Mars is um, perhaps dominated by that that process of cooling. And, you know, maybe one of the interesting things we discovered is uh, certainly uh, some of the overall activity is due to cooling. But perhaps a surprising amount uh, is coming from uh, these particular fractures. And the other thing that we found is that uh, some of the other fractures that are pretty recent on the kind of on the other side of the planet 
we're actually, because there's a, Mars has a much bigger core, we're actually in the shadow of um, the core with respect to the other side of the planet and how the seismic waves travel through the planet. So we can't actually pick up uh, all the quakes from some of the places that we think should be tectonically active on Mars. So yeah, we have the cooling and um, fortunately we have this great uh, local seismic source too. How is this different from what's here on Earth, what we know about the inside of our planet? Well, as uh, you know, Sue was talking about how Mars is cooling off, and, and actually the way a planet cools is really fundamental to its geology, to you know the, the, the features on the surface and, and the way they evolve. On the Earth, the planet loses its heat uh, mostly through the, the process of plate tectonics, when uh, hot material rises at mid-ocean ridges, and as it spreads out, it can cool itself uh, through the, the, the floor of the ocean. And that's a very efficient way of cooling a planet. And it uh, lends itself to a lot of dynamics, a lot of action. There's a lot of motion, a lot of forces that are built up. And so we have a very active planet with lots of uh, seismic activity, lots of volcanic activity, and the accompanying you know, hydrothermal activity and, and so forth. On Mars, since it only has one plate, essentially, there's no plate tectonics because we have one single plate covering the entire planet, um, it cools more slowly. It cools by conduction through the, the surface. And so most of the geologic activity is dominated by either um, localized volcanism or in some cases, there's some uh, rising and falling of that one plate as hot plumes from deep in the mantle rise up and can push up on the uh, bottom of the crust or maybe pull down where they descend back into the into the mantle and so it's a very different kind of uh, set of forces and and processes that, that occur on mars and that's to some extent that uh, explains a lot of the differences in the in the surface features that we see on mars uh, compared to the earth do uh, all the rules that we've learned for geology on earth necessarily hold true on mars or are these things that are surprising you both I would say for the most part, you know, the, the same rules apply. The, the really interesting part uh, for, for us as scientists is when you have the, the small deviations, not necessarily from the rules, but from the way the rules are applied. And so, you know, you have the same physics, the same, you know, physical laws, the same general geology, but the details, that's where, that's where the really interesting stuff is. You know, for example, on Mars, the, the crust is a little bit thinner than it is on the Earth. The core is a little bit bigger and, you know, relatively speaking. And those differences between the Mars and the Earth are due to differences in either the starting uh, conditions of the planet's formation or in the path of evolution that it took from those very earliest years till, till today. And so we're looking at those differences and using them to fine tune our models for understanding how, the, how these planetary processes work. I'm Roxanne Kamsey, and this is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. I'm talking with Bruce Bannert and Sue Smirkar about investigating the seismology of other planets. As I understand, you're working on plans for the Veritas mission to Venus, uh, which could also try to figure out things about the geologic processes working on that planet, but from orbit. So how do you do that? Well, uh, we're going to uh, t take data from a couple of different instruments. We're going to get uh, topography at high resolution radar images. You know, for Venus, it's shrouded in these, this thick cloud layer. So anything that we do from orbit has to be able to penetrate through that cloud layer. So we use radar to do that. 
Uh, and we also have a uh, spectrometer that, that sees the surface around uh, one micron, like in a thermal part of the uh, spectrum. And with that, we're able to look for things like uh, variations in the iron mineralogy that tell us uh, that a, a volcanic eruption has been there recently. It hasn't yet chemically um, equilibrated with the atmosphere. We can also look for actual active eruptions, but you have to be super lucky to see active eruptions because, you know, on Venus, on Earth, everywhere, basically when a super hot uh, lava comes to the surface, it starts to form a, a crust very quickly. And so it's hard to see that thermal signature from orbit uh, for more than a few weeks or so. So do you have a timeline for Veritas? Well, we're um, negotiating with NASA headquarters on exactly when we're going to launch. We're hoping it'll be uh, towards the end of uh, 2027. Great. Both of you have said some really interesting things. And what I'm curious about is what would you both hope to learn from either of your missions? Well, in terms of insight, um, we've really, with these three papers, kind of hit on the main goals of the mission. I mean, this is this is really what we started out, you know, 10, 15 years ago to do was, was to, to delineate the, the size of the core, the thickness of the crust, and the structure of the, of the mantle of Mars. On that level, you know, we, we could sit on our laurels now and say, you know, we're done. But of course, you know, we're still alive on the planet. We're still alive on the surface, taking seismic data uh, as we speak. And we'd like to, first of all, you know, refine those, those measurements, get, get them down to uh, more precise uh, values. And we're looking at, at new things. We're, we're looking at the possibility that uh, seismic activity on Mars might have uh, a seasonal variation, which is, uh, we, we have some hints of that now, which would be very strange and very uh, different than what we see on the Earth. Um, there's lots of different weird kinds of quake signals that we're seeing that we don't understand yet. So there's a, a lot to still to, to understand about Mars. Well, I'll, I'll tell you the things that I'm hoping to, to learn about Venus. <laughs> uh, you know, for me, the fascinating thing about Venus is that it is so similar in size to the Earth, but it doesn't have plate tectonics. And, you know, we've been talking all about how planets lose their heat and how what's going on inside with the loss of that heat affects what's going on on the surface. You know, Earth has plate tectonics. Mars has these big volcanoes and still has... Uh, faulting and so forth. Uh, Venus is this crazy place. It has a young surface, you know, uh, it's somewhat similar in age, the surface of the earth. Um, but it, and it, and it's so big, it has this giant amount of heat, this heat engine that should be churning and producing something like plate tectonics, but it doesn't. So the big question for me is how is it operating? You know, what's the process? We think that it may uh, have a lot to do with the volcanism. You know, there's just 80% of the surface is covered in volcanoes. And so maybe there's some kind of intermediate process where it loses a lot of heat through uh, volcanoes that never erupt on the surface. And the other thing that's truly fascinating to me is that we believe it has subduction zones where one of these thick plates is sinking into the mantle. And that is how everyone thinks plate tectonics started on the Earth. You know, Earth didn't start out that way. It, it didn't form with plate tectonics. It formed with a single plate. So this huge question is, how does plate tectonics start? And that crust is like billions and billions of years old. So we have little data to actually tell us how the Earth made this 
massive transition to plate tectonics, which has so, you know, dominated the evolution of the Earth. Uh, but on Venus, we think we can study the process of subduction occurring today and to uh, be able to see how a planet maybe starts down the path of plate tectonics to me is super fascinating. Well, as our planet is turning, we've run out of time, unfortunately. Uh, but Bruce Brannert, thank you so much. Sue Schmerkar, thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm really thrilled to, to be able to talk about this. Yeah, a pleasure. Thanks. Bruce Brannert is Principal Investigator for the Mars Insight Mission. And Sue Smirkar, she's Deputy Principal Investigator for the Mars Insight Lander and the Principal Investigator for the planned Veritas Space Probe to Venus. If you missed any part of this program or would like to hear it again, subscribe to our podcasts or ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday. Every day is now Science Friday. Say hi to us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or email us. The address is scifry at sciencefriday.com. Send feedback and tell us what you'd like us to cover, too. Ira's back next week. I'm Roxanne Kamsey.